0: To 2 Corinthians chapter 10, looking at verses uh, 1 through 18. 2 Corinthians 10, 1 through 18. Hear the word of God. I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you, That when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. Anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave us for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say... His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak, and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. We were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you, without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this passage tonight. And we ask for your help as we study it, that we might understand it rightly. And uh, Lord, that it would change our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you suffer from an overrealized eschatology? And before you go to make an appointment with your doctor, just to be sure, uh, I may should explain overrealized eschatology is uh, basically seminary talk for uh, a certain brand of triumphalism. Uh, to be specific, expecting too much, uh, expecting too much of the kingdom of heaven now more. Than is warranted by Scripture. Now, if you're still scratching your head, what does that mean? Go watch TBN. (laughs) You'll get some idea. It's kind of the expect a miracle. You should be be wealthy, free from illness, all of that kind of thing. As though though Christ has already ushered in the kingdom in all of its fullness. You may remember from the Explorers class in the the, uh, fifth lesson where we talk about our philosophy of ministry, we talk about the kingdom. Uh, and different views of the kingdom. Uh, some seeing the kingdom as mainly future, not really having anything to do with us. Some seeing it is already here pretty much in its fullness with not much left to come. But I think a biblical view is rather uh, to see ourselves as living between the time of Christ's first coming and second coming and enjoying the kingdom which has come and which is doing tremendous things and yet not having it in its fullness. And we already enjoy many benefits of the kingdom. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Our sins are forgiven. Uh, We have an inheritance in heaven. We have fellowship with God. But we do not yet enjoy benefits that one day will be ours. We don't have our glorified bodies now. We don't live in the new heavens and the new earth now. We struggle with sin in ourselves, in our society, in one another. Uh, We still experience pain in relationships with people we love and care about. So in other words, we already have a lot here, enjoy a great deal now, but we do not yet have it all. An overrealized eschatology is just that: uh, that Christ has ushered in the kingdom, and it's it's uh, thought to be more present and more full than it actually is. Overrealized. Now, one of the problems with the church in Corinth was just that. They were acting, at least a segment of the church was, as if it was all here, as if it had all come, especially in the area of spiritual gifts. D.A. Carson of uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School up in Chicago puts it this way, talking about uh, the church in Corinth. He says, The Corinthians were quick to seize every emphasis in Christianity that spoke, or seemed to speak, of spiritual power, of exaltation with Christ, of freedom, of triumph, of victorious Christian living, of leadership or religious success. But they neglected or suppressed those accents in Christianity that stressed meekness, servanthood, obedience, humility, And the need to follow Christ in his suffering, if one is to follow him in his crown. They glimpsed what Christ had done, yet failed to contemplate what remains to be done. They understood that D Day had arrived, but mistook it for V Day, Victory Day. They loved Christian triumphalism, but they did not know how to live under the sign of the cross. Now some of the Corinthians at least had fallen who had fallen into this trap of triumphalism, this overrealized eschatology, were the very ones who opposed Paul, opposed his ministry. They 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 either heard of Paul, many of them probably had not met him, came in later, uh, but certainly by reputation they opposed him. Uh, they examined what they knew of him and found Paul to be wanting one writer puts it, of Paul. His unimpressive, apparently, his unimpressive persona, his lack of rhetorical skills, his meek and humble demeanor, his poverty, his working with his hands, the absence of ecstatic experiences and visions, his incessant trials and difficulties rather than success, were to his opponents incontrovertible evidence that his ministry was of the flesh and not of the spirit. In other words, because Paul himself did not measure up to some standard that they had, then because his ministry didn't seem to exude the success that they thought was the standard, they wrote Paul off. saw him as a a lightweight, as uh, someone to be discarded and left behind by the Corinthian church as quickly as possible. Well, as I was reading that, if you know 2 Corinthians, you might have detected some of the very things that Paul addresses in these last few chapters of the letter of 2 Corinthians. Because up to this point, there's been a little bit of a different tone than you'll find in the last few chapters of the book. In chapters 1 through 9, Paul was writing uh, to basically the repentant majority of the church in Corinth. It's a much more peaceful tone. It's a much more personal tone. But when we come to chapters 10... In 11, 12, 13, the tone changes. Paul is more addressing the thoughts of the unrepentant minority, those who may still be holding out, those who are critical of Paul. Then the tone of it changes from gentle and encouraging to stern at times, and uh, combative, confrontational. Paul recognized if these people were to have their way with the church, then the very gospel in Corinth could be in danger. So this from here on out it's a little different tone as Paul in many ways uh speaks to, defends his own calling in his own ministry. Uh, very revealing about the apostle, uh some of the things that he talks about here, some invaluable things that we otherwise would not know about that Paul tells us. Well, let's look tonight then at chapter ten at the passage uh that we have, have just read uh where Paul specifically addresses this whole question of his of, of himself. And how he comes across to the church in Corinth. Well, first of all, Paul goes on in verses 1 through 6 to talk about his weapons, to talk about uh, his, his means, the, the methodology by which he works. And he begins, uh, importantly in verse 1, by not being particularly authoritative, but entreating, urging, imploring you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ... That was not the Christ the Corinthians like to think about. They like to think about Christ the victor, Christ the the king. Paul appeals to them by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Uh, and refers to himself, I am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. Apparently that was the line going around. Well, Paul certainly, you know, in his letters, he's all... A oh, little bluster, noise, but, but you get him in person and he's he's very different. He doesn't quite measure up. Not quite so much boldness there when he's in person. And we know people like that. People who talk, talk big until they're actually faced with the person they're concerned about. Uh, well, Paul picks up their own words. Humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I'm away. I beg of you, he says, when I'm present. I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some... Who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Now, when Paul talks about his weapons, his methodology, uh, he does so kind of a, a glance askew at these uh, these false prophets, false teachers who have come in. Because as we've seen, they tended to work on the basis of distortion, they tended to work on the basis of misinformation, they tended to work on the basis of manipulation. But Paul says, no, that's not how we work. We don't work according to the flesh. Uh, 3, though we walk in the flesh, we are in the body, he says, we are not waging war according to the flesh or according to normal human means of doing things. Uh, now, Paul goes on to say, verse 4, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Remember, Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica that the kingdom of of God is not a matter of talk. It's a matter of power. And not political power, not even military power, but the power of changed lives, the power of people being brought from unbelief to belief, from sin to obedience, from darkness to, to light. Well, that's what Paul is saying here. The weapons. Uh, have divine power to destroy strongholds. We've seen examples of that with Jesus casting out demons, power of the kingdom, changing people, freeing people. Now, specifically, uh, a lot of this takes place in the mind, takes place in debate. Uh, some of you were perhaps here last night to hear James White uh, speak on Islam. Fascinating uh, to hear what he had to say. Uh, in many ways, that, that is a debate of ideas. Who is God? What is he like? Who is the one true God? Is God Trinitarian? Is he not? Um, well, Paul speaks of those kinds of things. He says uh, in verse 4, They have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You say, well, you know, only God can convert somebody. Can't argue them into the kingdom. That's true. But God uses means. He may use your love. He may use your compassion. He may use the fact that you are willing to spend time with someone and show concern and regard for someone. That may be the means that he, he uses to show an unbeliever the love of God. And that may be what he uses to draw that person to Christ. But he also may use arguments. He may use your ideas as you're able to talk to someone, maybe know their position, or able to refute their position and uh, and speak the truth to them, show them why their position ultimately uh, fails and why your position is true. Just finished reading Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. Tim is Tim Keller is the uh, pa- founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, a church that thrives in the middle of Manhattan. Um, it's a good book. I encourage you to read it. The first half of the book, he's just dealing with various objections to Christianity that have been raised. And he's heard over the years ministering in New York City. And then the second half of the book is more of a positive presentation of some of the basic Christian positions on different things. It's really written toward unbelievers. But as a believer, you'll find that it, it helps equip you with some arguments and some insights. He uses some of the same kinds of uh, argumentation techniques that Paul Copan uh, demonstrated when he was here, of taking what the unbeliever says and showing why it ultimately fails, why it even is self-contradicting, why it's not even coherent. So I encourage you. Some people, God uses uh, arguments and reasoning in order to reach them. But ultimately, it is God who converts, but working through means. He may use your ability to show their position's absurdity, your position's truth, in order to bring a person to Christ. And that's what Paul is saying here. He doesn't work, as he's already said, through... uh, through slanting the truth, through hiding things, through manipulation, but rather a plain and straightforward presentation of the truth, dealing with the false ideas people have, presenting the truth of the gospel, and all the while, of course, trusting the Lord to work. But then he says in verse 6, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Uh, Paul is saying that uh, we're prepared as apostles to bring about discipline. Uh, when needed, uh, once those who are going to repent, those who are going to be faithful to the gospel are so, then uh, Paul says we're prepared to punish every disobedience. But it wants that to take place in the context of a church that is being faithful and giving them time to repent. But the point here is that Paul works through integrity, through truth, relying on divine power. Uh, as he says, taking every thought captive to obey Christ. Um and every thought should be kept to Christ. Um, you know, R.C. Sproul talked about the maverick molecule. Uh, if, there is, if there is just one maverick molecule running amok in the universe, then all of Providence could be undone. But the fact is, there's not. Well, there should not be maverick thoughts. We recognize that every thought, even in our thinking, the way we evaluate the world, ourselves, our lives, our families, other people, coworkers, neighbors, should be done from a Christian worldview, through a Christian grid bringing every thought captive to Christ. So that's the first thing that Paul talks about here is is his weapons. He doesn't work the way that these other people do, but rather through uh, biblical truth. second thing that he mentions here is his bearing. That also was apparently a problem. That also was being uh, attacked and uh, spoken ill of. And in verses 7 through 12, uh, Paul basically addresses these things that are being said about him personally. Verse 7, look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, uh, maybe he does, maybe he'll admit that a little, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed uh, that was one of the problems uh, that was being raised against Paul. That he he was he was lording his powers, throwing his weight around. And um, Paul acknowledges that that he maybe did boast a little too much in what the Lord had given him. But he reminds them the Lord gave them this authority, and Paul has used it for building up the church, not for destroying them. That was a pointed statement uh, directed at those false teachers who have come in. Paul says, if that's true, I won't be ashamed. And he picks up their charge. Verse 9, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. You know, letters have been written, mailed, received for a very long time. And we kind of got away from letter writing. We got into telephone calls and talked to each other. But we've kind of come back around now with email and there's a lot more writing that takes place and we have rediscovered the problem with letters. Letters are wonderful. You can keep them. You can pass them on to your children. Uh, you have, have them. If you're writing them, you have the time to be able to think through and say what you want to say. But letters and email have a very big disadvantage. It's easy to misread the tone. It's easy to uh, not quite catch a facial expression that might clue you in to the real intention of the writer. Uh, and that's certainly true with emails, which we often write with not nearly as much care as sometimes letters were written in the past, though even then, not always. Well, Paul says, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. Well, let just throw in these letters around like he's somebody. And Paul says, I'm not trying to frighten you. Please don't misunderstand the tone. don't mean to be threatening personally. Verse 10, for they say his letters are weighty and strong. Well, he writes big things in his letters. But his bodily presence is weak, and his speech is of no account. Well, sure, you've read his letters, but have you ever seen him? Have you ever heard him talk? Maybe you've uh, heard speakers like that. You've read their books. Their books are phenomenal. Books are great. And you hear them speak, and you're glad God called them to a writing ministry, because that seems to be <laughs> what their gift is and not necessarily uh, public speaking. Well, Paul takes exception to this. Verse 11, Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. The letters are who we are. The letters say the same thing to you. I would say in person, or one and the same Verse twelve: Not that we dare to classify. This is some sarcasm here. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. You know, no, we, what we are in our letters—that's who we are, and that's what we would be when we come to the church, when we are there. Um, certainly, as he says, I don't want to dare to com- commend, compare ourselves to those who commend themselves and measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another. They are without understanding. Paul says, look at them. Yes, they commend themselves, but by what measure? By one another. Paul goes on to talk about the importance of being commended, but being commended by the right source. They apparently, these false teachers, commend one another, measuring themselves by one another, which is always a danger. I mean, we tend to do that. Uh, we tend to compare ourselves with other people. We tend to compare ourselves to one another. Um, Comparison can be a problematic thing. Uh, I think I've told y'all I had a professor in seminary who absolutely uh, told us not to uh, ask one another, well, "How'd you do on the test?" "How'd you do on the test?" Uh, because if someone else did better than you, you feel bad. If you did better than they did, you tend to be puffed up a little bit. And uh, so he would he would strongly discourage us from sharing our grades with one another because it's comparison. Uh, But however we did, you know, maybe I got a couple points better than the next guy, and he made a 50. Uh, The standard was 100. You know, we can measure ourselves by one another and feel like we're doing pretty well when we're not, maybe not, coming anywhere close to the standard. I remember a New Testament course we took, had a test in there, and uh, Dr. Chamblin, our teacher, as he was handing out the tests, looking somewhat dismayed, said... Said, "All, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, but all play and no work makes Jack a dumb boy." And uh, so he was handing out our tests. That was not very encouraging. <laughs> but the point is, we tend to commend ourselves by ourselves. The standard is a hundred, not how the guy sitting next to you did. And so that's what Paul is saying here. They're not wise. They're without understanding. They don't see the big picture. And so Paul addresses the question of his weapons here, which are the weapons of the Lord's power, uh, the truth of God's word, as well as uh, showing the deficiencies in false thinking, Uh, his own bearing, which is consistent. He's not being someone else when he writes letters to them than than what he is in person. He is who he is in person, Uh, whether he truly is lacking eloquence uh, or unimpressive as a judgment call. Uh, Apparently, perhaps in some ways he wasn't. Uh, but even then, it was not his personal charisma or natural abilities that was the point. It was divine power, and God certainly was pleased to work through Paul, and God worked through Paul to establish this very church to which he is writing. And he goes on to speak of that uh, in this third section, which has to do with his boasting. Um, Paul does boast in his own ministry, but not in himself. Paul's boasting is in what God has chosen to do through him. Uh, Paul's boasting is in the work that God had given him to do and how God had accomplished that through Paul. And so that's what he says in verse 13. But we will not boast beyond limits. Or maybe we could even read that since Paul's not here to give the inflection. But we will not boast beyond limits. Again, looking at the false teachers but we will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us, to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. Paul says, I'm not writing to you like you're some church I've never been to, had nothing to do with you. In fact, he goes on to say, we were the very first to reach you with the gospel. That's something. It certainly should count for something. Um, summer of 1985, I went to Korea uh, for the summer. And... Um, Korea, Korea is a great success story in missions. Uh, the first Korean missionaries, uh, or first American missionaries, went to Korea in the 1880s, and by the time I was there, a hundred years later, about 40% of Korea was professing Christians. Uh, that is that's astonishing. That is remarkable, and it was interesting to talk to Koreans because they were they 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 had a very high opinion of Americans and a great deal of respect. Uh, for us, it was expressed toward me for two things. One, uh, America's involvement in the Korean War. There was a great deal of, even even in 1985, gratitude and uh, memory of the assistance that the United States provided and was involved in the Korean War. Uh, but especially among uh, Korean Christians, which is who I mostly was among, there was also a great deal of gratitude for the gospel. Or having brought the gospel, uh, one reason that Korea is is such a large uh, majority of Presbyterians, so many Presbyterians there, is so it was Presbyterian mini- uh, missionaries who were among the first there with the gospel. Uh, similar thing to what Paul is saying here: the church in Corinth was planted by Paul himself, and uh, Paul says, "We'll we'll boast. We're going to you know take some delight in what happened here because it wasn't as though I had nothing to do with you." It was through our efforts. We were the first to reach you with the gospel. And verse verse 15, it says, We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Paul says, not only that, we want, we want to reach areas beyond you. Have you involved in that? Help to send us on our way in that? But then he, he actually quotes from the Old Testament, from Jeremiah, verse 17. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, Paul does boast. He boasts about what God has done through him. But he's boasting not in himself personally, but in the Lord and what the Lord has accomplished. And uh, it is, it's, it's not only frustrating, but painful for Paul that this church that he planted is struggling with what to think about him as, as it has, and with the, with the breach in the relationship that he has experienced. That was painful, and that's, as we've seen, what he's been t- trying to repair in this letter. But there are still those who are causing problems, and Paul has to address them. Verse 18, For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. That really kind of ties it up and closes his argument. Apparently, these false prophets were commending themselves, measuring themselves by one another. And uh, as, as Paul would say, you know I don't even don't even approve myself. It's the Lord who judges. It's the Lord's opinion, the Lord's measurement, the Lord's assessment that counts. And so, as he says, when they measure themselves by one another, they're without understanding. Uh, It's not him who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. And uh, implied there is part of Paul's argument, that Paul is uh, demonstrably one whom the Lord commends and has set his seal upon. I remember reading Charles Haddon Spurgeon talking about uh, the difficulty of, in selecting texts, Charles Spurgeon would preach on a different text. He, he did not like series. He would preach on a different text each Sunday. He believed you should, should wait upon the Lord uh, each, each week, uh, even if you have to wait up to within minutes of the service. Uh, and Spurgeon could do that. Uh, with what the Lord would have you to say. Most of us would suffer a nervous breakdown. And in fact, Spurgeon almost did. He suffered from depression, which I think was largely, indu- <laughs> largely uh, induced to the stress of waiting on the Lord for it to preach on on Sundays. Um, but, but Spurgeon comments on, uh, on, on reading somewhere of someone who said you know, that, that preaching and getting texts should be the easiest thing in the world, and if someone struggles with that, then it's apparent God hasn't called him to the ministry. And uh, Spurgeon took solace in the fact that God had manifestly set his seal of approval on Spurgeon's ministry despite his difficulty in coming up with the text for Sunday and that he uh, had been the instrument of reaching thousands with the gospel of Christ. and, And Christ had blessed his ministry tremendously and still does to the present day. Well, he's not alone. Uh, Paul is one who is so commended because the Lord had manifestly set his seal of approval upon Paul and upon his ministry. But we do well to remember uh, these things uh, when we have detractors or others are questioning us, uh, to remember these things that Paul uh, speaks about here. First of all, his his confidence in the power of God's truth. Uh, We want to be equipped to answer questions as best we can. We want to... uh, to be able to give a cogent and uh, reasonable presentation of our faith, or uh, as Peter puts it, to give a reason for the hope that we have. Uh, if you can't answer a question, that's okay, but we want to know our know our stuff as well as we can. Uh, when he speaks to his bearing, uh, the importance of being consistent, the importance of being um, the same, whether it's we're writing emails or letters or in person, uh, that we're not. Different people in different ways, or we're not different people to different people, but a consistency in our personality. But then also recommending, as Paul says here, it's ultimately not what people think of us, whether they approve us, maybe it's family members or friends or neighbors or whatever. Uh, it's the Lord who commends, and it's to Him that we entrust our reputation. And ultimately, while Paul was trying to make the case for himself with the church in Corinth, he was quite content to leave his reputation, to leave his effectiveness, his success, if you will, in the Lord's hands, and to leave the final verdict for what has happened in the hands of the Lord. And if Paul is content to do that, then you and I certainly must be as well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Paul, and uh, in such high regard as we hold him, it's astonishing to think that uh, that there was a church who knew him personally, who had their doubts at times. Uh, even were tempted to listen to those who were critical of him, or even writing him off. Uh, Father, that's astounding to us. Uh, and yet, Lord, uh, we too uh, are sinners. We too, uh, Father, have sometimes selective hearing, selective vision. But Father, we thank you for Paul. Thank you for his faithfulness. Pray that we too would be faithful. That we would be content to leave our reputation with you, Father, at the same time, to be as prepared as we can to know your truth, to be able to communicate it, but also to be able to live consistently in uh, our lives before others. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.